yes, you know, people who love games like to point out that the gaming industry is larger than, you know, the movie business and the music business combined. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. On today's episode of the Investing City podcast, we have the pleasure of speaking with Aaron Bush. So Aaron is honestly one of the smartest people that I've ever met, and we're going to take a deep dive on esports and gaming because he started a newsletter called Master the Meta, which really dives into this topic. So enjoy because it's really fascinating. Okay, on this episode of the Investing City podcast, we have Aaron Bush on. So thanks for being here, Aaron. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Great. So we we're just talking about this offline, but I was just telling you how much I'm enjoying Master the Meta, your newsletter about gaming and esports. And so I just want to kind of frame the conversation around that. And so can you just tell us about a trend in that particular subsection of technology that you're really interested in right now? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that the gaming industry in general is fascinating because it's always moving in so many directions. And I could probably name like five different trends off the top of my head. Um, but how about this one? Let's go with, uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the cloud um, streaming influences the gaming industry this is a technology wave right now that within the gaming world seems to be getting a lot of um, skepticism and I understand why it's tough to pull off from a technology side to make sure you know you get your frame rates right so that competitive um, players won't have any disadvantage but I think in the long run it sort of is a no-brainer and the implications of what cloud-based streaming would be are pretty magnificent in how they could shake up the industry. In some ways, things will stay the same, types of games, um, just how people will continue to play with friends. But it really pushes for additional cross-play. People can play the same game on multiple devices anywhere. Um, potentially influences business model changes if it comes from companies like Microsoft who own, you know, Azure, big cloud computing business, and are able to, to connect that to um, Game Pass, their subscription service. So just as one example, cloud, what it means for cross-play and changing business models is fascinating to me, but I could definitely go on. Gotcha. And so just mentioning some cross-play, what are your thoughts about uh, Stadia, Google's new um, offering or um, even the Microsoft one that you brought up? Just what are your thoughts on some of these big tech companies making some forays into this space? So I think that this trend is inevitable. More companies will get into this, talking about Microsoft, Google, Tencent across the, the world. And it really is just a matter of when 
Um, I think now might be a little bit too soon, but you know, in a couple of years or so, it could be a bit more of a mainstream thing. Um, to determine who succeeds, I think it really depends more on what else that side of the business is associated with. So for example, Microsoft will probably be successful because they also own a console platform. They also own a ton of exclusive games. I also own online services and a subscription service. Um, so it, it ties more neatly into what they already can offer across console and PC. Um, with Google and Stadia, it was cool when they announced it, and I think it piqued a lot of people's interest, but it also raised a lot of questions. And as time has rolled on, I think it's evident that Google is treating this situation like they do many other situations where their hammer, their hammer is technology, and that's they're just looking for every single technology nail. Um, and the problem with that is video games is more than technology. What it takes to succeed um, is, yes, good technology, being able to solve technology problems, but also being able to solve marketing problems, also being able to solve content problems, media problems. And Google is focused less on those other elements that are needed to succeed and focusing almost exclusively on technology. Um, so I think that they have a lot to prove and maybe a lot to learn if they want to seriously come out and compete against more video games specific companies that have more expertise and more bandwidth to, to move across different areas within the, the gaming sphere. Um, someone like Tencent, I mean, kind of similar to Microsoft, they have big cloud computing business. They dominate the, the video game industry in China and have a big presence in many parts of the world. So in terms of them being able to vertically integrate something, I think that they are positioned as well. Um, I think that in general, this will take more time to unfold in a really meaningful way that completely sweeps across the industry than many people expect. And the winners will will probably be um, people who both have big cloud infrastructure, but also who probably already have experience in video games. Yeah, so as you talk through how you know, Microsoft might be more apt to really compete at a serious level, that kind of brings me to this idea of the value chain in esports and gaming. So before we get too deep into this, can you give us an overview of kind of the journey of a game being made and then how it's actually distributed in terms of the pub publishers, the platforms, um, you know, like all of that, that would be super helpful. Sure. So traditionally, it's changed a bit over time, but traditionally a developer will you know, come up with an idea for a game, they'll have the resources, uh, like the technology resources and ideas to be able to make that game. But what they lack is funding and they lack distribution and they lack a lot of the, the business side of things. So traditionally what happens is that publishers will strike deals with developers where the publishers will get the rights to the content um, typically and they'll take on the responsibilities of marketing it and making sure that it is successful across the business side of things. Um, and how the split works, uh, I mean, it really just depends on the situation, but traditionally it was like the, the developers would get 10 to 20% of the gross revenue, um, like the wholesale revenue before it goes through any retailer or anything. And then the publisher would get whatever is left over after the, the developer takes their cut and then 
the retailer, whether it's a physical retailer or a digital retailer, takes their cut. Um, that still is often the case. Um, however, just as uh, like technology has changed, more types of games have emerged, how that works um, isn't as clear-cut formulaic anymore. So, for example, with mobile, it could be different. Sometimes you see publishers not wanting to, to give away cuts to developers, so they bring developers in-house and own them. Sometimes developers, instead of going to publishers who often take a huge cut, will instead get venture funding in order to, to self-publish. Um, so, so it really just depends on the situation, but in general, that, that's mainly how it works, where the publisher gets the, the majority of the value in that. And then kind of going through the rest of the value chain, the, the retailer traditionally gets about a 30% cut, and it's been very competitive over the past many years where companies like Amazon, Best Buy, and GameStop um, are trying to compete on price or rolling out different um, membership deals and membership uh, subscriptions in order to, to get people to be loyal to one particular business. But that has um, obviously shifted more digital where there are other gatekeepers who also are able to, to get their cut, which typically isn't as big. So as games turn more digital, they become more profitable. And as we're seeing with the rise of potential other contenders in that sphere, like the rise of the Epic Games Store, they're taking an even smaller cut um, of the transaction volume, which makes it more appealing for publishers to work with them, perhaps exclusively, which we're seeing them strike some, some deals there. And also for developers who want to, to go rogue and go on their own, um, when they're able to retain more value themselves, um, really for the first time in a long time, um, it, it makes, gives more flexibility to developers to structure their businesses and more um, favorable ways. So that's kind of a high level summary. And there, there are lots of other ways we can get into the value chain of uh, like the, the video game engines, the gaming engines and GPUs and all that type of thing. But in terms of how a video game itself is made, um, the, that's the main talking points. Yeah, so that's super helpful. And you mentioned Epic Games. So just talk a little bit about kind of their rise. And you're talking about how publishers like working with them. So just talk about kind of their place in this whole thing. Sure. So I think it might help to back up a little bit because I, I built a framework that I've kind of called like the path to platform, whereas the, the industry has changed and more has become possible through new types of technology, um, what we're able to see games become and lead to has changed over time. So traditionally, video games were a one-and-done type of event. You spend $50, $60 on a game, you play it, and you're done. Um, and that sort of has shifted over the years to more like what we consider now games as a service, where sure, maybe you pay to, to buy the game, or maybe it's free to play, but you stay engaged over time and often um, pay extra for additional features, downloadable content um, as you play the game over time. And then some games make it to an additional tier where they can be considered proprietary ecosystems where they have a brand that is so strong that they're able to do other things with it. So if you think recently Riot Games, which is behind League of Legends, 
like one of the largest, not the largest esport out there. Um, they announced in one day five more games and an anime series based on sort of the lore that has been built up around that original one game. And so they've been able to turn that one game into a fuller ecosystem. And something like Pokemon, which is, you know, maybe the highest revenue generating entertainment franchise ever has also been able to do that through games, through other types of media, through different types of licensed toys, um, et cetera. And then there is the ultimate um, tier, which are the commerce platforms themselves. When a company is able to have such a big hit that they're able to amass such a large audience that not only are they able to take a game and turn it not just into a service, not just even into a proprietary ecosystem, but able to leverage that audience into a full-blown commerce platform. And you saw this first um, way back in the day with Steam, which started from games like CSGO um, or Counter-Strike at the time, um, which amassed a pretty large audience. They got people hooked to using Steam. And then Steam went from there to let other publishers, other developers post their own games on the platform, and then they took a cut of that. And what we're seeing is um, Epic with uh, Fortnite being the largest video game success that we've seen in a really long time, um, able to take that audience of something like 200 million plus registered uh, players and yes, are able to turn Fortnite itself into a successful monetized game, but they've also been able to create an entire store using that audience where, again, similar to Steam, they're able to, to host third-party games, games from other developers, other publishers, and then get a cut of other companies' revenue and their transactions too. So in my mind, that is like the ultimate move of how a game can turn into a platform. And Epic Games is the largest success um, recently in those terms. There's still have a lot to prove, but what they've been able to do so far is really impressive from um, being able to catch lightning and then be able to, to seize that opportunity and do something really meaningful with it. Wow, that is super interesting. And do you think Epic kind of had this vision or how do you think they actually kind of created this platform shift? I think that's a good question. And I don't exactly know what they were thinking pre Fortnite. So Epic, um, they're best known originally for their own game engine, um, the unreal engine, which a bunch of different developers across the world use to build their own games. And then, Epic got royalties off of those games um, that, that use their game engine. Um, so they weren't always just thinking about developing games. And what makes you know, Fortnite interesting in this sense is that because the company owns a game engine, they're able to try all sorts of different things that they're able to throw into that, that world. Um, and really, if you think about it, just because this company has always been more than a publisher, a games business. They've also been a technology business. They're pretty well positioned to do something else with that. I don't know if they were always thinking about making the Epic Games Store something meaningful, but listening and reading interviews of their CEO, Tim Sweeney, it's very clear that they're thinking 
much bigger than even just like a commerce platform. He's thinking about <laughs> like the metaverse where people will come, you know, in through a game and be able to do all sorts of things. And maybe Fortnite is like a very early version of what that could be. Like the like last year, or I guess earlier this year, they hosted a uh, like a, a marshmallow concert within the game that got millions, tens of millions of of like live viewers of that event, which really for like a video game to be hosting like a concert in game was like a pretty defining moment of what a very early stage, what the metaverse could be. So I think, I think Epic Games is thinking much bigger than just a store. They're thinking about, okay, how can we turn all of this, all of what we're working on into like the ultimate end goal? Again, like that's so far out there. It's hard to even figure out what the roadmap is or whether they can even pull something like that off in 10, 20 years. Um, but they're definitely thinking um, ambitiously. Wait, let me let me get this straight. So the Marshmallow concert was actually in the game. So how did they actually pull that off? And was it a release of a game or just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was a it was a special event in the game where at a certain time, um, players from all around the world could go together and they like had like a certain part of the, the Fortnite map where they put in a stage. And for like 10 minutes or so, like it was for, it was Marshmallow doing like a live concert. And it's cool because in the game, like it's different from what like a concert would be in real life. Like they can do all sorts of things with graphics and make like your character move around and um, like take like a concert, like a digital concert to the extreme. But yeah, it was, it's, it's pretty crazy if you think about it. And it's something that like people who are really thinking about how video games evolve should have seen something like that coming. But Epic is just, at least of late, has been a step ahead of everyone on more than one reason, and that just being one of them. Wow, that's wild. I mean, so just talk about, like, you think about this stuff a lot and the future of it. So I'm just curious about where you kind of see or if you like had your perfect world in 10 years to be able to kind of have this metaverse or maybe it's not even metaverse just a really interesting sort of thing about how technology and gaming collide like what is your vision of what this could be yeah i think it it starts by understanding that so much about this industry is unpredictable um, like, like all of these things, like nobody saw coming, nobody saw Fortnite coming, nobody saw like really like anything defining of this industry coming. Like it, the industry has been written by seeming randomness to outsiders. But really, if you think about the future, I think you have to think about the, the different trends that are going on and how they might converge. So we mentioned, you know, the rise of cloud, the rise of cross play. Um, mobile being a key component of that. Um, mobile doesn't really get enough attention, but it's 45% of game industry sales and like an overwhelming percent of gamers who play on mobile. So there's that. The gaming industry is completely international. China is the largest gaming market in the world. Games as a service, things being more free to play, more subscription based, um, that is becoming something that is defining. Um, 
I, I mean, esports, user-generated content, um, sort of like we see with with movies in Hollywood, how how the traditionally big brands like Star Wars and Marvel um, superheroes are remain the the top draws at the box office. I think that we'll see something similar with video games too, where the dominant franchises maintain dominance. And so piecing all of that together, I think that what we'll see is probably the next Fortnite, I would say, is going to be much larger and different from the Fortnite that we see right now. It's going to be built from day one for crossplay, for cloud, for mobile, to be played all around the world. It's going to take what is a dominant franchise and blow it up into something big. It's going to add um, all like new types of monetization components. And perhaps importantly, it's going to take the idea of a game being like a narrative, a story where everything matters. And what Fortnite did recently when they um, closed out chapter one and launched chapter two is that they tied the servers going down into part of the, the narrative where the old map got sucked into a black hole and suddenly everybody is staring at a black hole and servers are going into maintenance for two days. Um, so I think we'll see very much like a, like a story-driven, culture-driven, completely global across all devices um, type of game that is going to be competitive and casual and engrossing. And I know a lot of that, it kind of sounds like a lot, it sounds kind of vague because I really, no one really knows. Um, but how these different trends converge is what really will define that next game that just blows up in a, in a way that's bigger than we've ever seen before. Wow. So do you think that it's most likely that that will come from Epic? or Because I'm just trying to think of um, this platform framework because at a certain point, you're, you don't want as a developer to have like a ton of different platforms because then you don't really have the aggregation of all the users. So like, what, how do you think about that? Do you think it'll be kind of like a winner take all in terms of this platform? Um, I don't think so. Um, and I would say like, it makes sense to think of Epic as a winner and they, they very well might be their position pretty well, increasingly well. Um, but if we asked this question, you know, a year and a half ago, Epic wouldn't have even been in the conversation. Like most people wouldn't even have known that that is a company that exists. And so that, that could very well happen again, where some new company that's just starting out goes on to define something that shakes the industry. Yet again, I feel like that's inevitable. But at the same time, with how these platforms emerge, I do think that there is, um, there will be some aggregation, but I don't think that it really is based on network effects where demand is aggregated. It's going to be more based on where the um, supply is. So, for example, one in the console wars between Xbox and PlayStation, one defining reason why a consumer would choose one over the other is because of content, exclusive games that they have. And I think that we'll see the same thing shake out across whether it's mobile with Apple Arcade and their newest subscription. Um, Xbox, you know, investing more heavily than ever 
more heavily than ever in exclusive games, or Epic is investing very heavily in exclusive content right now, which is enraging much of the gaming community, which that community is very <laughs> easy to enrage anyways. Um, but what we're seeing is a lot of different players are seeking um, their own high quality uh, exclusive content, similar to what you see sort of in the, the TV business between like a Netflix and a HBO and a Disney Plus. There are, there are similar dynamics here. It's not exactly the same. I wouldn't overplay the similarity. Um, but in terms of this is, these are media problems. And again, why someone like Google is probably not as well positioned to succeed. It's more than technology. It's media. It's content. Um, and that is a lot harder to aggregate when you already have lots of players trying to, to be successful in the same way at the same time. Gotcha. So as you bring up all these interesting points, I think what a lot of listeners are probably thinking about is, okay, this is great. And we see this explosive growth, all these interesting trends coming together, but how do I actually profit from this? So what, from an investing point of view, where do you kind of think that you can take advantage of all this knowledge? Like, is it in the publishers or because with Epic, I mean, doesn't Tencent have some big stakes um, in, in Epic, but um, just like talk a little bit about where you see potential um, for investors going forward. Yeah, I, I definitely think that companies who make great games will continue to be rewarded. And the spectrum of what is possible is wider than ever because there are more gamers than ever. And people are spending more money playing more, more games in more ways. So there are a ton of ways to succeed. And if you look across the publishers, probably most of what is available in public markets are publishers. Um, and, you know, sometimes they go through hard times. They've been pretty great performers historically. Um, so I would really just be thinking, hey, which of these companies is positioned to continue to make great games, is willing to invest the resources to produce um, what can really, truly stand out? Which of those publishers is thinking about a lot of those trends that I just mentioned, like who... Like, who is best positioned to capitalize on mobile? Who is best positioned to transition to, to games as a service? Like, who has the, the esports that can really make a difference? Um, so I think there's a lot to think about when it comes to, to publishers. But you mentioned something like, like Tencent, which really is just a, like a conglomerate of, of publishers and platforms. Um, and I think they're, they're well positioned too. They have regulatory advantages being in China. Um, sometimes, you know, the regulation can, can bite you and it has bit them over the past year or so, but it also is a, a pretty strong competitive advantage in terms of people not being able to compete with them. Um, but I also would just be thinking about, um, as we think about platforms and who will win, what, um, like what are those platforms? Like who is best positioned to win that platform battle? And I think the company that is best positioned there is probably Microsoft. And I don't, you know, games is a pretty small part of that business, which probably makes, you know, the investing case, the, at least being gaming related, less compelling. Um, but 
thinking about who has all of the capabilities to put something unique together that can bring tons of people together. So someone like Microsoft, they have the infrastructure, they have the consoles, they have the content, they have the online services, they have the subscription services, they, they own you know, Mixer, which is a, like a Twitch competitor. Um, so they own a lot of different pieces that they can piece together in a, in a strategic way that makes sense. Um, you can also look at companies like NVIDIA, which, you know, I have some, you know, some hesitance about, but there are a lot of companies across the value chain that, that you can think about. Um, and how you think about those companies naturally changes depending on what the company does, obviously. Um, but I, I mean, looking at publishers, a lot of those businesses will continue to do well. And it's just figuring out who is best positioned there. Gotcha. And so I was reading through one of your posts and you're talking about um, Huya and Douyu. And those are Chinese uh, live stream gaming companies. And you're talking about how the Chinese market there is different than something like Twitch. So can you just explain that a little bit? Because Douyu and Huya are really kind of competing against each other. But in the US market, at least, it seems like Twitch kind of has the market a little bit to itself. Yeah, so so you're right. The Twitch very much has had the live streaming market to itself. YouTube has done some stuff, but that's not really their focus. Um, so Twitch has been able to just so far dominate the, the streaming industry, especially relating to video games. In China, however, there has been more competition. And and Huya and, and Douyu are the two main competitors there. And it's one of those things where simply the presence of there being competition fundamentally changes the nature of business models. And what we see is that these companies have shifted from being um, platform companies, from being gatekeepers, to being much more content companies. Because in order to compete, they've started buying exclusive rights to their top personalities and streaming is very much an industry where um, the where power laws occur where you know the top streamers just dominate the top personalities define the success of a platform the long tail is important but at a certain stage of maturity it doesn't matter as much as it used to um, so as a result those companies in China have like significantly lower gross margins because they pay a ton for content. Um, it's something they're like gross margins are like 20% or so, um, which I don't know exactly what Twitch's is, just being a part of Amazon, but I'm sure it's a lot higher than that. But what's interesting is that again, earlier this year, Mixer, which uh, a lot of people in the gaming world know of it, but didn't use it. It's just like a much smaller version of Twitch that Microsoft owns. Um, they announced that they are essentially buying Ninja's streaming rights and they just took probably the face of Twitch and put it on their platform. And in and of itself, you know, one person doesn't kill Twitch, but the fact that somebody for the first time in the US exclusively bought the rights to a top personality suddenly means that the race is on. Like it's the shot heard around the gaming world, I think is how I, I framed it up. And now we see Twitch just uh, 
you know, did their first exclusive deal with a streamer. Um, and I know there are a lot of discussions going on behind the scenes of, of top personalities and potentially like entire esports organizations um, looking to strike exclusive content deals with platforms. And this is good for the, the streamers. This is good for gamers. This is good for a lot of the organizations out there because competition means that they have more options and they can potentially get more competitive pricing for themselves. But for the platforms themselves, that is not good news. And it means that um, Twitch might very well have to shift from being, a, from being that platform, that gatekeeper company into being a content company themselves, which means significantly lower margins. I think it still is a question of how much is Mixer in particular willing to invest in order to gain those top personalities. I mean, they have Microsoft's balance sheet, so they could do whatever. And in, in some cases, you could say that the, the ROI for streamers on Mixer is higher than it is on Twitch, because similar to how um, Disney is able to have to lower Disney Plus prices because the benefit spreads around the entire Disney ecosystem. The same thing could happen with Microsoft where, yes, they'll bring people to Mixer, but if that means that they also bring consumers more exclusively into the Xbox, the Microsoft world, um, you get benefits from that that Twitch doesn't necessarily have an equivalent for. So we'll see if, if Mixer is willing to put up significantly more money to nail down more personalities. Um, if, if they are, that could spell trouble for Twitch's current business model. Yeah, that's super interesting. So if you were in the boardroom at Twitch or something, what, what would you be advising in terms of their strategy? Double down on exclusive contracts or start thinking about the content stage? Yeah, I think you have to be, you have to get ready. If there is going to be some type of content war, that is out of your hands. If, if somebody else wants to get into the industry and therefore change how the economics work, there's really nothing you can do about that. So you need to get ready to strike deals if it comes to that. However, you don't want it to come to that. So what you would want to do is do everything in your power to help these top personalities, these top streamers succeed. Um, whether that means you know giving them new content tests or more means, more types of monetization or just being able to, to work closer with them to help them grow or solve their own problems. Um, putting much more focus on service to those top people to make sure that they feel valued um, and have more reason to stick around, I think is what you have to do. I don't know if Twitch has done a good job of doing that though. Um, the, the bigger they've gotten, the less competition that they've had, the, the more, I don't wanna say lazy, but the more lenient they've been um, in terms of you know, not putting their best foot forward for solving a lot of crucial problems on the platform, um, relations with streamers being one of them. So that's how I think about it. You definitely don't want the content war to open up, but you can't really control it. So you got to get ready no matter what. Gotcha. And you mentioned a little bit ago that mobile is maybe a little bit of an underloved thing. I mean, you said 
It makes up 45% of industry sales. So talk a little bit about mobile and where you kind of see it going from here and maybe Apple's new offering. Yeah, so mobile, if you, if you kind of look at PC and console and mobile, um, mobile is now the largest segment of gaming and it is the fastest growing. Um, and the, it's like a pretty obvious thing for like outsiders to look in and be like, yeah, it's kind of obvious you should pay attention to mobile. But what's interesting about the gaming industry is that people who like really care about games um, and our hardcore gamers probably are not just naturally playing games on mobile as much because they opt for, you know, playing more complicated, more in-depth games on, you know, other, whether it's on PC or console. So it's just something that's not talked about at events, on Twitter, wherever. Um, so mobile is definitely under love. Um, you know, how I see it moving is that it, it very much is a global industry. So if I were a publisher, how I'd be thinking about it is really in a couple ways. One is how do you gain um, international success? Um, games or software, they have a fixed cost. And so really you just want to sell the, that same unit of software as many times as you can. Um, and if you can get a big enough audience, you can justify investing more resources into creating ongoing content that keeps that large audience engaged and spending for for months and years on end and an international component is just like the clear way to get scale that a lot of companies are still figuring out china being the largest gaming market having a lot of regulations that makes it a tough hurdle um so you have to you know partner you gotta work with regular with regulators um so it is more complicated than in other industries and just saying Hey, go global. Um, but that, that is a defining piece. The other thing is that I feel like, um, at least for the top publishers, uh, optionality is still something that people are figuring out. A lot of the, the leading brands, the most popular gaming brands have failed to translate to mobile, whether because it just, the publishers haven't tried yet or because they couldn't figure it out and it wasn't an initial success. And I have a feeling one next major wave for mobile will be um, figuring out how to take top brands and move them over to mobile. We saw that recently with Call of Duty. Call of Duty Mobile just launched, which is Activision's uh, latest attempt at mobile. And this is the real deal. It was created by um, a Tencent studio. Um, and it amassed 100 million users within the first week or two. So it, it will be a pretty massive success, and that is both because of the mechanics of the game, but mainly because of the, the brand advantage that leads to, to pretty automatic scale. And we're seeing this with League of Legends. Like a week ago, Riot Games announced that they're going to be porting over League of Legends, a new version, to mobile, to console. Um, and that's going to be a big hit. So I think we'll see more of that. Um, I, I think subscription, as you mentioned, with Apple and Apple Arcade, that still is a big question mark for people. In general, I'm bullish on that idea because the economics of bundling are favorable for consumers. I think 
people have sort of forgotten how, how nice bundling is. You get a lot for a little, um, and spending $5 a month for, you know, dozens over a hundred games, um, is a pretty good value. If those games are good, it all, it all boils down to whether or not the games are good. Um, but again, games are fixed costs. And so game Apple arcade for Apple should be a much better business than something like Apple music where they have to pay for every single song played. It should be able to scale up much more profitably. And they even put one of the, the, the like five tabs in the app store for Apple arcade. And I, I forget the stat off the top of my head, but like something like a third to a half of mobile spending is on games. So like it's a pretty massive audience and Apple wouldn't be making these changes unless it was more favorable to them. Um, but because it is more favorable to them, I think it raises questions, especially in the eyes of the largest publishers and figuring out, is it better to work with an Apple Arcade or is it better to work outside of it? And I think what that ultimately will boil down to is whether or not Apple Arcade is able to successfully bring in tens of millions of, of actively engaged subscribers who get used to, to only paying $5 a month um, for access to everything and wouldn't want to, to play anything outside of Apple Arcade. So far, that's not the case. I'm not exactly sure how that's going to play out. Um, I think I want to see more time. Um, to see how those those reviews for those games go and therefore see what adoption is like. But I, I do think that that is going to be um, a big challenge over the next three years or so that companies will have to figure out. Another piece of this is that the, the Apples and Googles of the world, they take a 30% cut on every transaction, every in-game transaction that, that goes on. And we're starting to see some antitrust pressures put on Apple from lots of different angles related to, 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 to the cut that they take. And these gaming businesses, like a company like Zynga, for example, which is pretty much entirely focused on mobile, they'll be major beneficiaries if some, some change happens in how terms are set. So it's still a lot of questions, but there's significant upside for pretty much every publisher here. If they can figure out how to build good mobile games and how to sell them. Yeah, super helpful overview of mobile. And so just as you're talking about all of this, I've been thinking like how, what is that your actual process for researching and kind of getting your head around this space? Because you're a person who can really understand a lot of things deeply and just tell listeners a little bit about what you actually do to research and kind of understand all these pieces of this industry. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I would say it, it's I don't have a defining process because different you know types of companies you need to think about differently and and gaming in general is just one piece of of what I think about anyways. So maybe to start broad and get more narrow, um, I think in order to successfully understand this industry, you can't only focus on this industry. For example, gaming is just one piece of a broader um, entertainment universe. Yes, you know, people who love games like to point out that the gaming industry is larger than, you know, the movie business and the music business combined. 
but a lot of those other industries are still important. If you think about you know, video games as brands, this is still one piece. And what goes on with brands in the, the movie business is important. Um, and how sometimes brands from movies and TV shows might make it into games, how brands from games might make it into to other mediums of entertainment. And I think that just understanding the shifts that are going on in TV, in movies, understanding, um, you know, how top franchises are, are killing it, understanding how subscription is changing the game. A lot of these same factors, just being content, just being a different form of media, they follow a lot of the same rules. And increasingly, as we start to see games go mainstream, because they will, sometimes um, attention and dollar amounts uh, it, it lags a little bit. Uh, and so I think we're seeing that right now with, yes, the gaming industry is huge, but the attention is lagging. I think that'll change. And as the attention ramps up, it'll start to interface more with other, um, other types of entertainment. So it's important to be understanding what's going on in general. So another piece to, to think about, thinking about the other, all the other things going on in entertainment is one, but thinking about what's going on with technology in general is also an important piece. So thinking about what is Microsoft doing? What is Sony doing? What is Google doing? What is Tencent doing? Um, figuring out the, the changes they're making to technology at, at the very core, like what is going on with cloud? What will that enable? Um, like what type of features will be involved in, in new types of, of you know, consoles and streaming services? That's all really important because historically, the, the gaming industry has changed um, based on technology. New types of technology has unleashed new types of business models. Um, so, so all that's important. So I, I think a lot of the pillars that I think about understand trends in entertainment in general, understand trends of technology in general. And really the, the third pillar is just sort of the, the nitty gritty, like really just uploading as much information as you can about what like what games are popular why are they popular what publishers are behind them like what are what kind of processes are they putting into place to make those games successful is it replicable like like probably like the best thing that i have done to understand this industry is just like create a list on twitter that follows tons of different people in the industry, different executives, different journalists, different esports players, different teams, different companies um, to, to kind of keep me in the loop of all of the different things. And it's just like every day, it's just like a massive data upload. And, and what I enjoy about, about writing is it, it helps me narrow in on what is most important. And the writing itself helps me figure out, um, helps me make up my own opinion on things. I know a lot of people talk about how writing is thinking. For me, that, that is so very true in thinking about how all of these different things come together and what it means for the future of, of these companies. Um, and then at the same time, it's just staying humble <laughs> because in the same way that Fortnite broke out and completely changed the industry and nobody saw it coming because why would anybody have seen that coming? It's just understanding that that is going to happen again. It's going to happen with games, it's going to happen with platforms, it's going to happen um, with personalities 
like so much is unpredictable. Um, the best you can do is just understand all of the different forces at play. And when something happens, when lightning strikes, so you're able to fit whatever just happened into your broader mental framework of everything else that is going on. Um, so it's pretty time intensive to, to think critically about all of these different things. <laughs> Most people don't need to do this at all. I just enjoy it. Um, but I would say in general, that's how I think about things. So it isn't exactly process, I would say. Um, but it's a, it's a framework that I use that helps me get to what is signal out of all of the noise. Yeah, and that's definitely broadly applicable to different industries and everything. So that's super helpful. Um, yeah, just thank you so much, Aaron. Just one last question. So are there any daily habits that you do that have contributed to your success? Um, no. I, I would say I think that systems sometimes are very important in the sense that um, – it keeps you consistently doing something. And I, I like to build systems, you know, around, you know, like exercise and around, you know, trying to set time aside for writing and learning. Um, but, but really I, I sort of have learned to break habit. And I know something that we used to talk about a long time ago um, was how I love saying that really in so many things there are no rules and sometimes it's important to just remind yourself of that and so whether it's just, it's something as simple as like hey in a meeting i tend to sit in the same chair i'm going to take a different chair uh, and get weird looks from people or um just completely mix up your routine or mix up you know the type of content you're looking at or whatever i found that mixing it up has added a ton of value to me, just in terms of things I run across, making life more interesting. Um, so almost like the strategy of the anti-habit, I found to be the most rewarding for, for learning and thinking about things that you might not have run across otherwise. I love that. And that's uh, so very Aaron Bush. Uh, <laughs> so I appreciate that. Um, thanks again, Aaron. This is a blast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ryan. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Tuesday and Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that, have a fantastic day.